0: It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, man. Hyped to be here, as always. Yeah, just listen to that. <laughs> man, that's that's excitement. If you guys don't know, that is Dr. Baraki, 10 out of 10, excited. Uh, this is episode 194. This is our September 2022 research review, where we... As the title implies, review the latest research uh, to bring you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. But before we get into that, we ha- do have some announcements. One, our whey protein is back in stock. Whey RX—it's only got four ingredients. It's eighty calories, the lowest calorie per unit protein on the, the market. That was kind of our goal, just to make something that's literally just protein. It's back in stock, and we're going to give you ten percent off through Friday. So use the code PRO TEN at checkout on our website, and you get ten percent off on uh, your protein order through Friday and uh, we normally don't, don't run uh, specials on this so if you're in need of some a good high quality protein supplement here here's your chance Austin, are you are you uh, are you taking whey whey protein these days you on the you on the the sauce so to speak yeah.
1: <laughs> the sauce yes i'm on i'm on gear and by gear i mean whey and creatine yeah and th- creatine. i mean those are those are the effect- the only two supplements that i've taken for for years pretty much at this point
0: yeah and my general thing on on any sort of protein supplementation is like as needed right it's not like part of my I don't have I don't have a protein shake every day, and then people are like, "Oh, do you take protein after you work out?" And I'm like, "Well, yeah, but usually in the form of food, unless I it's going to be a while before I can eat, or for whatever reason I'm craving a protein shake." Which I'll be honest rare. with you, rare. <laughs> yeah, but like you know, if I'm going from the gym, uh, for example, and then I'm going to go on a mountain bike ride, or I'm going to go, you know, work on the bikes or something like that, and I just can't. I don't have time to sit down and eat like a full on meal. I'll have a protein shake and then eat later um and so if you're on the go you need or you need a low calorie way to uh, see that see what i did there a low calorie way to get your protein in yeah whey, uh protein supplement is is uh can be useful and it can be whey it could be a pea protein isolate it could be soy protein there's look it doesn't matter where you get it from uh we chose whey because it's got the highest amount of essential amino acids uh per uh content per unit protein and and that's that's what we picked, but there are other protein supplements out there that uh, will fit your needs. Also, uh, we know that all of our stuff's batch tested, so it doesn't have anything in it that's not on the label. It's not contaminated, and uh, you're getting uh, what, you, what you paid for. So, anyway, you can use code PROTEN to get 10% off through this Friday on all of your whey protein orders uh, on our website. Also, again, we got seminars. Coming up, live in-person seminars. You get to see myself, Dr. Baraki, Leah Lutz, Alan Thrall, Tom Campitelli, et al. In the flesh. Uh, we're going to be in Los Angeles this November. So that's coming up. I know we have a few spots left. I think it's we're like less than a handful. So if you're wanting to be on the West Coast... Um, this fall and you want to come to a barbell medicine in-person seminar, LA would be a great, great place to go. This, this gym is actually really cool that we're going to. The facility is really nice. I'm pretty excited to go there. Um, So yeah, we'll be in Los Angeles in November. Our pain and rehab team, they got a two, two uh, day live in-person seminar in Miami in January that just uh, popped up. And then uh, we'll be in Atlanta for another health and performance two day seminar uh, next February. And we'll be in New York in May. So if you're, you want to come hang out with us learn uh about human health and performance and get some coaching come to uh, come to our seminar uh we'll link all that in the description below all right baraki let's let's do this this is probably your favorite research review that we've ever done i can tell you're very passionate about all these topics and i'm just excited to to dig into this so this uh again is episode 194. so the the title of this paper is behavioral counseling interventions to promote a healthy diet and physical activity for cardiovascular disease prevention in adults without known cardiovascular disease risk factors? Come on, guys. This, let's get a better title. Let's just like, like simplify <laughs> it. So uh, if your eyes glazed over when I was reading that, basically they're saying, does recommending uh, lifestyle changes like exercise and dietary pattern change help reduce uh, incidence of heart disease in people without known heart disease? off the bat okay so this is from pat et al they uh work at the kaiser permanente evidence-based practice center in portland oregon this was published july of 2022 in jama the journal of the american medical association so basically what they did is a review of the literature to investigate if counseling patients without existing cardiovascular disease risk factors on uh, healthy lifestyle changes like exercise and dietary pattern change actually improved outcomes so did it prevent people from developing risk factors for cardiovascular disease or actual cardiovascular events. Um, This is an update to a previous 2017 recommendation that recommended a clinician selectively counsel folks uh, without known cardiovascular disease risk factors on lifestyle change for primary prevention. And so I actually think this is a good place for uh, you to jump in, Austin. Uh, Primary prevention, secondary risk reduction, like this sounds like a bunch of research nerd terms, but like just so the listeners know what we're talking about, what is primary prevention? Uh, Like how would you uh, define that?
1: Yeah, so so this is a situation where they're looking at trying to intervene on people who do not have known or existing disease or disease risk factors in order to prevent that disease from developing at all. Um, and so, you know it sounds good to everybody who's listening. They're probably like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Try to prevent everything before, before it happens. And and it makes sense to do this thing. But of course it is an assumption that such an intervention would actually work to impact that outcome. And, and, you know, in general people, both clinicians and lay people tend to overestimate the benefits of like medical treatments and interventions. They think they help more than they tend to in reality. And they tend to underestimate risks and harms and things like that. And so that's why even for something that seems like it would make as much sense as talking to people without any of these risk factors from a primary prevention standpoint you would prefer to have data that shows that, yeah, it's actually likely to help prevent uh, these bad things from developing, compare it to secondary prevention where, you know, or, or tertiary prevention, which gets a little more complicated. We won't get into the weeds on that, but more so like once disease is established, somebody who has maybe had a heart attack or something like that, for example, what can we do at that point to mitigate the risk of recurring events in the future? Right. So you, people will, um, you know, commonly hear about this discussed, for example, from the standpoint of um, how aggressively we'll treat certain risk factors, be it like, you know, how how aggressively do we want to lower people's blood cholesterol levels, as an example. And that, approach to treatment, um, you know, does to an extent vary uh, between a primary prevention situation, somebody who is out, you know, seemingly healthy, doesn't have any known disease or is known to not have disease um, compared to somebody who has had a history of heart attack or stroke or something like that in the past. We approach those situations differently because they are starting from different levels of baseline risk and therefore we have different potential to impact outcomes. So For people who are in a primary prevention situation, you know, they are at a lower risk compared to somebody who is in a secondary prevention situation. And people who are starting out at lower risk in the first place, you probably have less potential to substantially impact their outcomes, which is why we'd want to know, like, is this intervention that we're doing worth the time and effort and cost and potential, like, you know, training that people would need to go through to be able to do this effectively and things like that? Does that ultimately impact outcomes from a primary prevention standpoint in a meaningful in uh, in a meaningful way, even though it sounds good, everybody wants to prevent disease from happening before it ever does. But uh, you have to actually show it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm in 100% agreement that you would want data showing, like, yep, if you're going to take the time and and have your professionals go through the training necessary to rec- recommend dietary pattern changes and exercise uh, activity changes, that it actually you know improves outcomes in folks with who are exist already healthy, right, or at least don't have any current risk factors. I agree that you need to, the data, but If you're going to do this review article, and this is where I'm going to go with this whole thing, the review article actually has to show you one way or another, does that actually happen? Like, it needs to give you a signal. And I feel like there's a, I'm going to, we'll talk about it. Some things that are just, it's not good enough. And I'm kind of annoyed. Okay. So let's talk about what they did in this paper. They took 113 randomized controlled trials, the total sample size, just under 130,000 subjects, 60 of these randomized controlled trials were from the United States, um, so this is like a multi-center multinational uh type review article um ages range from 18 and a half to 79 and a half which is again another flat like keep that in the back of your mind like (laughs) these are not the same people right if you're talking about exercise and dietary pattern change in an 18 and a half year old versus a 75 year old and you're following these people for five years on average like what was the risk of the 18 year and a half year old you know having a cardiovascular risk factor in the next five years like almost zero where anyway all right we'll get we'll get to that the average age was 54 though the BMI average interestingly was 28 which uh, is in that overweight uh, category remember that's from 25 uh, to 29.99 so the average BMI did show uh, uh, that individuals uh, with with overweight and most trials included both men and women uh, of these 113 randomized control trials, a third focused on both healthy diet and physical activity modification, 19% focused on diet only and 48% focused on physical activity only. So what were the results? So there's four real questions here like Does it improve outcomes? Did the counseling uh, actually change behavior? Uh, Did it improve? Did this counseling actually improve any like intermediate outcomes uh, relative uh, to cardiovascular disease risk? And are there any harms? So let's talk about first, did it improve outcomes? And so what they're looking at here uh, was cardiovascular disease and uh, morbidity and mortality related to cardiovascular disease. So Austin, if you know, you're reading research and you're trying to kind of interpret that and and relay that to a patient when you talk about cardiovascular disease, morbidity, mortality, what does that actually mean? Um, So people know what we're talking about here.
1: Yeah. And in its simplest terms, I mean, most people who have been around the healthcare system or who have even, you know, family members that they've, you know, paid attention to their health trajectory over the lifespan, you know, given that it's the, some of the leading cause of disability and death worldwide, things like heart attacks and strokes are, are reasonably well understood, uh, by a lot of folks in terms of what that means. So if I'm talking about morbidity. That's kind of the, the hyper distilled oversimplified way that I talk about it as it relates to cardiovascular disease, things like heart attacks and strokes, and then mortality describes death attributable to those things or complications thereof.
0: Yeah. So with respect to this particular study, they're not asking, does exercise reduce cardiovascular disease, morbidity and mortality? They're asking, asking, does behavioral change counseling in the clinic does that actually change outcomes compared to people who are not receiving this counseling? The prediction being that if you got the counseling in the clinic, you're going to go maybe do the thing, change your behavior, and then that in and of itself will change the outcome. And so, yeah, there was a small improvement in cardiovascular disease and associated morbidity and mortality in those who received the counseling compared to those who did not. Unfortunately, the data here isn't great because only three of the 113 randomized control trials actually investigated this over a long enough period of time for us to actually comment on whether or not this occurred, meaning like at six months or greater time period. So I don't feel terribly confident that like, you know, what they're reporting is false. (laughs) Like, oh yeah, behavior change counseling in the clinic like does nothing to improve outcomes. It's just like what you would want is, you know, 100 studies (laughs) all doing behavior change counseling and then you see a more robust, repeatable like sort of signal uh, and then you could kind of hang your hat on that. Just right at this point, we just don't have that data. And again, this is not saying that exercise doesn't improve cardiovascular disease or cardiovascular disease-related outcomes. It's more just the act of counseling patients in the clinic.
1: Here's here's kind of I um, I don't know, an, an analogy to this as far as how you can think about it from a, from a research standpoint is... Um, Cardiovascular disease, what we're talking about, this progression of atherosclerosis plaque, something we've hammered on in multiple recent podcasts, as as well as many prior to that, Um, and the progression of that disease process to the point where somebody will actually sustain something like a heart attack or a stroke, that is a many year to decades long process. And so it is very difficult to demonstrate major changes in that risk in a relatively short period of time unless the size of your population is enormous and the lower their starting risk is. So like, again, you you know, these people who are like 18 years old or whatever (laughs) at the start, uh, it is near impossible to to show a major impact on risk in in a population uh, like that, given how low their starting risk is. And this is also an issue, this is reflected in a lot of the pharmaceutical trials, right? So, you know, if you talk to anybody about, statin efficacy, um, things like that, um, given that this is a very slow disease process over the course of the lifespan, we also have evidence and reason to believe that the earlier, uh, you know, say something like, to pick one risk factor, that blood lipids, blood cholesterol levels are lowered. the earlier in life we do that, that benefit magnifies over the course of the lifespan. But if studies don't, last that long, right? So imagine like the extreme short end, I put you on this medicine today, and I measure your outcomes in a week, like, of course, (laughs) there's not going to be any substantial, you know, impact on risk. Whereas if I measure impact on risk over the course of 60 years or something like that, then yes, we, you know, things are much different. And we have reason to believe that from genetic studies and things like that. And so if that's the impact that we're seeing from pharmaceutical trials that can have like exceptionally potent effects on some of these risk factors, one example being like this fancy drug class called the PCSK9 inhibitors that showed, you know, a reduction in heart disease risk over the course of like two and a half years or something like that, which was like shockingly short period of time to show that benefit on risk, but it's partially because of how potent they were combined with the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the size of those trials and, and what they're able to show. So again, this is a complicated kind of, uh, area, given the what we call latency period of this disease. It's super slow, long, 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 uh, kind of to, to develop it and to show the manifestations. And so you either need a super potent intervention to show benefit, or you need a super large sample size to show it, uh, or you need a super long duration study to show it. Those would be like the three ways and uh, either, either any of them or some combination of them. And so to the extent that you have people who are you know, very low risk by definition, kind of primary prevention, generally healthy without existing disease, to the extent that your intervention is not super potent or as is likely in this study, may be very heterogeneous, meaning like the counseling that people are getting is probably pretty variable. Like people don't, all doctors don't do this in the same way. <laughs> some in a passing way might say, yeah, you should like go exercise and lose weight, which is generally not an effective way to go about behavior change counseling. And some might do it, you know, by the book, super, you know, uh, a textbook effective way of motivational interviewing and things like that. And so that can all kind of contribute to things coming out in the wash. And then duration is also going to impact this. So, so there's a number of reasons why assessing the efficacy of this kind of an intervention can be tricky depending on who you're studying it in, how long you're looking at the outcomes of and this is all just kind of like a microcosm of the broader issues with cardiovascular disease intervention research that we see from the pharmaceutical
0: side as well. Oh Austin just he just skipped to the end he just went to the end what are my problems with this <laughs> <laughs> report uh, but yeah I'm, I'm in agreement uh, just briefly a few other the the results that they found. Um, so they also investigated, did it did this behavior change counseling in the clinic actually improve any intermediate outcomes? So rather than just look at like cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular morbidity, mortality, but rather did it, it improve things like low-density lipoprotein, body composition, blood pressure, et cetera, 43 of the 113 studies investigated this. Yes, there were small improvements in blood pressure, total cholesterol, LDL, fasting blood sugar, BMI, body weight, waist circumference, et cetera. Interestingly, there was a dose response association between total minutes of counseling, which is reflected by like number of in person sessions, and the size of the effect. Meaning that the people who got more counseling saw a greater effect, which should surprise absolutely no one. That you know, on the way out, if the healthcare professional is like, "Yeah, you should walk more," versus like, "See in six months, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) hundred percent, yeah." Versus like, let's talk about you know your current physical activity. Like, what are you willing to do? Here's what you know what you can do, what resources you have, et cetera, likely to have a better effect. And maybe especially if they're able to refer to maybe a specialized sort of group to take that over, because again, a lot of, a lot of healthcare professionals just aren't going to have enough time to do this anyway. Right. So, okay. So that was the intermediate outcomes. Uh, as far as actually does the behavioral change counseling change behavior? Uh, so yeah, a bunch of the trials investigated this 45 trials, uh, basically reported this with respect to dietary pattern changes, and then 87 trials uh, reported this with respect to physical activity uh, changes. There were significant associations between dietary counseling and things like saturated fatty acid intake, fruit and vegetable servings per day, fiber intake, etc. So that seems to be on board with, hey, if you give these folks some behavior change counseling, they're likely to change their dietary pattern. That's good news. With respect to physical activity, there was a definite uptick in the amount of physical activity about 33 minutes per week and there was a greater proportion of people meeting the physical activity guidelines for Americans at long time points 6 to 2 years after the counseling uh took place uh, uh, so that's actually pretty impressive that there was some like um you know sustainment of, of these activities uh the only thing that i found interesting here under this Uh, was that there was no significant change in sedentary behavior which some studies looked at things like screen time some studies looked at things like uh, time spent watching tv etc so it seems like the lever that this changes mostly that the behavior change counseling changes mostly is related to volitional like physical activity not like oh you're just gonna watch less tv so you exercise more it's like you're gonna do both and again we're just gonna bring it back like why or when you can and there's a lot of great tv shows out there (laughs) i think yeah uh so that 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 I found that to be interesting the last question uh, that they tried to investigate here were are there any harms to uh doing this behavior change counseling so there's 23 trials reporting on this and the authors conclude no uh, none of these studies reported rates of any adverse events to be statistically significantly different between groups which that's great I mean uh, we could just leave it there but this was interesting that 12 trials, uh, reported the difference in uh, incidence in musculoskeletal injuries between those who got the behavior change counseling and those who didn't, and there were no differences between groups. Presumably, you would think that there would be more people exercising in those getting the behavior change counseling compared to those who didn't, and there were no difference in the report of musculoskeletal injuries, which this is not a unique finding. There have been a number of studies investigating like, okay, if you have previously uh, people who were previously insufficiently active start exercise. And then they start exercising, how do their injury rates compare to those who remain insufficiently active? And a number of studies have found no differences. So just, you know, another interesting note there. All right. So take home here. Yeah. Behavior change counseling, maybe, maybe a good idea. Uh, Yeah. I think I'd feel comfortable saying that Behavior change counseling likely improves diet and activity-related behaviors in those who don't currently have any risk factors for cardiovascular disease or existing cardiovascular disease. We know previously the number needed to treat with respect to getting people to adhere to um, the physical activity guidelines is about 12, meaning that a physician or other healthcare professional needs to counsel 12 people on changing their physical activity behaviors to get one of them to adhere to the physical activity guidelines for adults at, a, at, at 12 months later, that's, Hey, you got, that's a numbers game. Like if you're to you're just gonna have to do it for a lot of people. But I also think you would want to kind of, you would want to, you'd want to break that down and say, well, what's working. What's not working? Cause 12 still, that's, that's, that's a well, bigger number. Than I, I think, hope.
1: I think this is, I think this is worth spending a minute on because I mentioned earlier that in general, both people, patients and clinicians Again, there's well-documented evidence of this, that they tend to overestimate the effectiveness of medical interventions, in particular things like medicines and surgeries and things like that. Um, And this is a very consistent theme. And, And if for anybody who is a clinician in the audience, I mean, looking up data on, you know, think this idea of the number needed to treat, like how many people do I need to treat with this particular medicine to prevent one from having a, you know, a bad outcome or something like that. Most of the things you do are probably have higher numbers needed to treat than this, which again, higher numbers needed to treat means it's a generally less efficacious intervention. It takes more people doing this to actually help one. But in so many other contexts, we don't know which, who, who the patient is that, that benefits. So I'll give you an example. Like I could admit, you know, I could see like, you know, 10, 15, 20 people with pneumonia, right? And treat them with antibiotics. And I could pat myself on the back and assume that, oh yeah, all 20 people who I gave antibiotics, their pneumonia got better because of the antibiotics I gave them. That turns out to not be true. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> oh, right. There's similarly a number needed to treat that a certain proportion of those people were going to get better what, regardless of, of what I did. It's just not possible for me to know who is who. And so ultimately we end up you know, using our clinical assessment and figuring out risks and benefits and, and things like that. And ultimately probably treating A lot of those people, um, in order for a smaller proportion of them to benefit. And there are lots of interventions that have numbers needed to treat, you know, 50, 60, 80, a hundred plus, right. Which is not great. So a number needed to treat of 12 is actually quite good. The problem with it though, is that as compared with somebody who comes in, say they have pneumonia, I give them an antibiotic and then they come back and they tell me they feel better. I could pat myself on the back and assume that what I did, did the job with exercise counseling. I think that a lot of clinicians get jaded because they may try this. And then of course, a, 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 relatively large proportion of people that they see may not readily adopt this behavior and radically overchange their, you know, uh, change their, their, their behavior. And so it is more apparent, oh, what I did for this person didn't really have any uptake or didn't work. And so a lot of folks get jaded and assume that nobody listens. Patients don't do what I'm, what I say, as if that's the way that medicine should work. Like I just tell people what to do and they do it, which is, uh, incorrect, but the, the, the um, effectiveness of what you're doing is more apparent there compared to with a lot of other medical interventions. Um, and so again, 12, yes, obviously, it's higher than I would like, I would like for the number to treat to be one, one. every single person <laughs> that I counsel on this, they change their behavior. But that's not realistic for there's literally no medical intervention that has that level of, <laughs> of effectiveness. Um, and so uh, that's kind of something that's worth keeping in mind and, and a and a good takeaway for clinicians who may be inclined to feel like jaded about this behavioral change counseling, that nobody listens, et cetera, et cetera. Nobody's gonna pick this up, so so why bother? That's actually not the case. And it's probably more effective than lots of other things. Like, I have maybe some bad news for you that, you know, you're probably treating more people with high blood pressure than are actually benefiting from your treatment for high blood pressure compared with this number needed to treat. And, and the, other, the other caveat here is that this number needed to treat may be variable depending on how skilled the clinician is, how good they are at delivering this intervention. Somebody who is exceptionally good at behavior change counseling, that's one side of the kind of equation. The other side is, of course, who the patient is, the patient population you work with. And the tougher, more challenging of a clinical environment, the tougher the patient population is, the more you know disadvantaged, underserved, et cetera, et cetera the better you're going to need to be at this to have any measurable impact. But that doesn't mean you don't do it at all because here we have some reason to believe that it is going to help. uh, And and in particular help with the thing that is the leading cause of death, both in the U S and worldwide.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's where I was going next with the, like, how, how are they doing this though? And and, like, what is the, the, the recommendation because eventually, you know, they, they come back to the thing like, yeah, you should, we should be counseling our patients in general. If you, if, you feel like they're open to change on behavior change. It's like, okay, great, cool. What should the doctors do? Like, just, just even even if it even if it's a consensus statement thing, even if it's like not evidence based because we don't have that evidence on like what works best in all populations. Like, give a plan. Like, let's give a plan. Let's start doing these A B tests. Let's start trying to optimize this because right now it's like, oh yeah, you should just do behavior change counseling. It's like, it, okay, but but like how though? And, and I'm not saying that for from like my standpoint but like if you're in a busy practice and you're seeing 25 30 patients a day you're like okay great yeah recommending people exercise and change their dietary pattern is health promoting like cool thank you for this update but it's like how, how though so i feel like that's a that was kind of a miss uh for this uh type thing because usually with the USPSTF stf they'll, they'll be like yeah we recommend this screening here's the screening we recommend or like the interval we recommend or something and it's like well, you, you, this is like incomplete So uh, kind of a bummer on that. Uh, Also, so somebody who's like an exercise skeptic, if they're like, nah, exercise doesn't do that much just for the bros, you know, they're going to see if they look at some of the absolute changes in particularly like the intermediate outcomes, things like blood pressure, LDL, blood glucose lowering, or whatever, they're going to see like relatively small absolute changes. They're like, oh, wow, it only lowered their blood pressure on average of like Two millimeters of mercury. It's like, well, this is from 130,000 people. We're averaging all these changes with heterogeneous, like exercise interventions, dietary pattern changes. Like, we don't know exactly what they're doing. And at a population level, if the average blood pressure dropped by two millimeters of mercury systolic, holy crap! Can you imagine what that would do to like the you know public health? That would be huge. um So I think if people read that and they just look at like the average changes, they're not going to be impressed, but that just you just need to take it to the next step like what if since we're looking at like large population level change like what does it actually mean so these small changes i think uh could have a big impact at the public health you know level uh i just i kind of wish they would have came out and said that <laughs> in in the in the paper rather than just like leave it to the reader uh but you know that that's fine the last my last not issue, but more of like a a kind of takeaway here is that, yeah, they basically said there's no harms. And I think that may be due to the relatively few amount of studies actually like investigating for harms and what they were investigating for. Uh, So yeah, it was only what, like 20 trials reporting on any sort of harms and most of them are related to like musculoskeletal injuries or something like that rather than like, Hey, did anybody get dietary pattern counseling that like made them feel Bad or you know made them, uh, you know, uh, not see their physician on a normal schedule in the future because they they felt like their relationship had been jeopardized. Like just just there's just more to this, right? And so I think again, if I were writing this or if they had called Barbo Medicine, they're like, hey guys, we're coming out with this recommendation. Can you guys give us like a practical like take home at the end on like what do in the clinic? It's like well. Yeah, if you're going to advise people on dietary pattern changes, I think we can counsel everybody on dietary pattern changes for health promotion. It doesn't have to be for weight management, weight loss, body composition, etc. If somebody expresses interest in those things, great, we can leverage that motivation. We can leverage that sort of goal-directed process. Uh, But it doesn't have to be on like, yeah, we're going to change your diet so you can lose weight and, and then be healthy. It's like we can just change the dietary pattern to promote healthy not only behaviors but also healthy changes independent of weight and if the weight does change maybe you get some additional benefit but we don't have to that doesn't have to be the goal and so i think that would be uh, uh something that i would probably have explicitly stated in the practical take home thing and um i also feel like it's highly unlikely that there were no harms at all for it's just like i don't think the reporting instrument was sensitive enough sure but
1: yeah yeah. And the only other thing I would add, I think, because we have a fair number of clinicians in the audience as well. And so I actually came across a pretty handy resource. So, so um, Canadians seem to do a good job with a lot of primary care content. So I pay attention to some of the stuff from the peer uh, the peer group up there. Um, that's actually an, an acronym, I think. Uh, it's not like my peers up there. Um, and then there's another resource called the Therapeutics Initiative, which is um, primarily medication or like pharmacist-oriented, but they do kind of periodic reviews on things. And so the therapeutics initiative, they had a pretty handy resource that came out in July of this year um, that I think would be helpful for clinicians, for residents, for medical students, kind of in the audience to check out. The title of their little uh, document that came out in July is called Physical Activity is Medicine, Prescribe It. And so we'll set that title aside because we've done our own rants on calling things that are not medicine, medicine. (laughs) But regardless of the title, the actual content here is actually quite good um as far as pulling together data from systematic reviews and and, and things like that on these uh, uh counseling interventions for increasing physical activity as well as since you mentioned like a practical take-home the takeaway of like how to actually prescribe uh, physical activity in practice because it seems to be more effective to actually provide patients with like an exercise prescription to increase physical activity and also being explicit about what it is for than to just recommend that people do, you know, do more, walk just, more, whatever. Just exercise more. Yeah. Just yeah. So, so, you know, this is a, this will, we'll probably be able to, to include the link here and there's some nice summary boxes. There's some, also a ton of additional, you know, there's like a list of top 10 physical activity resources for, for healthcare professionals. Um, and an example of like, you know, a, a physical activity prescription that they list, they say it, it resembles a medication prescription, but it substitutes certain things. So they explicitly define the type of activity, the intensity, of activity, the dosage of activity, the frequency, the duration, etc., And then writing the indication for it to reinforce the message. So they offer a, a sample quote, like walk briskly and every day for at least 30 minutes to reduce blood pressure and lower blood sugar. Let's re- reassess your progress in four weeks. So being more explicit, with a follow up plan, things like that. And again, that's not necessarily something that you just hand out that generic template to everybody, but rather you would ideally want to individualize it more based on people's again, their as we've talked about before their um, you know, preferences and abilities and limitations and goals and access and and all sorts of other things like that, which is why this can be a bit of a process. But this is all these are all ways to make your counseling more effective. And perhaps if you're a clinician, to lower your your number needed to treat, perhaps say you're not very good at this, it takes 50 people to get one person to start exercising, bring that down more towards the the 12 kind of average that we have from the data or perhaps if you're even better than that getting it you know sub 10 into the single digits that'd be great too
0: i notice that their top 10 physical activity resources for mds nps patients or anyone else does not include a link to barbell medicine and uh, <laughs> i think uh i think we're gonna have to have a word with these people <laughs> Like, what are you guys doing all right fair enough yeah we'll put that in the uh that in the description below so you guys can check that out okay that was our first article. Second article. Now we move from my my pet paper to Austin's pet paper. This is his favorite paper of the Research Review: <laughs> The Effect of Footwear on the Biomechanics of the Loaded Squat, Loaded Back Squat, to Volitional Exhaustion in Skilled Lifters. And you know, if we're talking about footwear, <laughs> Austin <laughs> got a hot take. <laughs> he's got a hot take. He's got a hot take. That's right. So this is from Bryce at Al, at a research group out of Australia. From our from our people in the South Pacific. It was published this month in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. Um, so basically, here's here's why they did this. There are a number of studies on uh, differences in footwear and what happens in a back squat. So do people bend over more from the hip? Do people have more knee flexion? Do people have more ankle dorsiflexion? You know, what happens mechanically? A bunch of studies on that. However, most of these studies are done with like a single set, submaximal, uh, and they just, you know, are taking that and extrapolating it to, oh, this is what theoretically would happen at a heavier weight or at a set taken to failure, uh, for example. And a number of these studies also have like weird comparisons. It's like, oh, we're going to use a weightlifting shoe compared to barefoot, which I guess isn't too weird, but I feel like that's a weird, that's like, a strange dichotomy because most people are choosing between like a weightlifting shoe and like a minimal shoe, for example. Uh, and you also, there's probably some effect of self-selected footwear and like what you're used to compared to just going into the lab. So in this study, they wanted to examine how the body moved during multiple sets to failure with a heeled shoe compared to a flat heel shoe. And so this all sounds great. We're all on board like, cool, tell us the answer. And then you get into the study and, and things things kind of go a little sideways. Uh, So as far as what they did, uh, basically they had two sessions for each footwear condition. So session one was like this familiarization sort of session. They basically went in, did a one RM test in the specific shoe. And then they had them uh, do an 80% of their one RM AMRAP just to like get used to it. The idea being like, hey, this is what's coming next time, guys. And so then uh, the next week, the folks would present. They would turn up to the exercise science lab and do three AMRAP tests at 80% of their 1RM on two minutes rest, which makes no sense, but that's that's what they did. Uh, and they did that for both shoe conditions, so separated by some time interval in between. Um, so this was done in 11 dudes. Average age was 26.8 years old. The uh, mean one rep max was 138 kilos, so what is that, 306, 304? It was about one, 1.7 times body weight, so not bad but you know okay we'll move on as far as the footwear so they for the flat sold shoe condition they use these shoes called anko shoes now i searched the internet i i tried and i'm a shoe guy like if anybody's going to be able to find these shoes i feel like it's me i try to go to an anko website apparently they're they're out of perth australia doesn't exist on the google machine i can go to like alibaba and see like a I can see a, sh- a a a picture that's been subsequently taken down. Like these shoes don't exist anymore. The best I can tell is these kind of look like Vans slip-ons, maybe. But that that's that's as far as I'm willing to commit. And they took the insole out. So being lifters, they were like, we don't want any squishy insoles. They took the insole out for the flat sole shoe condition. And then for the heeled shoe condition, what they did is they took the same shoe insoleless, and they put a heel wedge in there, which Damn it, guys. Like, I mean, I mean, I understand why they did that. So effectively, now that all of the shoes between subjects are the exact same. Everyone's using the same shoe. But I feel like you could have done that with a sponsor. Like you could have just got a shoe manufacturer to send you shoes uh, for this sort of study. But maybe not. I don't know. Uh, I just feel like nobody wears these shoes and nobody who's squatting any appreciable amount of weight is using an inserted heel in their shoe. And like, imagine if I was like, hey, Austin, let's go max out your back squat. We're going to take shoes you normally don't wear and put a heel wedge in there. See what happens. Like, one, you would decline. And then two, if I was like, no, but I'm gonna give you a lot of money. You're like, okay, it would just be it would not be reflective of your actual performance because it's just different. So the ecological validity is probably a little lower here. Uh, In any case, they had a bunch of markers affixed to different uh, joints. And body uh, anatom- anatomical landmarks to basically use a high uh, frame rate, high resolution camera to uh, measure different uh, joint angles and whatnot. They also used force plate to measure force output and power. Uh, and basically, they just compared to see what happened uh, between the second repetition of the first AMRAP set and the final repetition of the third AMRAP set. So, again, they did three AMRAPs at 80% of their 1RM. On two minutes rest, and just saw what happened. Okay. So as we would expect, in a heeled shoe, there was a greater joint moment, which basically means there's greater uh uh knees forward position and ankle dorsiflexion um in a heel in the heeled shoe. And that actually crept up as the set went on and on and on. Uh, as these people got more and more fatigued. So basically, yes, more knees forward, more ankle flexion with the heel shoe as the set went on. In the flat heel condition, there was a greater moment at the hip and the lumbar spine, may- meaning that people bent over more as they got more and more fatigued. I know, shocker, this is a shocker, heel shoe compared to flat shoe, there was a slight difference in their mechanics. Um, as far as what happened from like the range of motion Uh, Both were preserved. There were really no differences in range of motion. So people weren't on average squatting deeper or uh, there was no, not greater vertical bar displacement in the heeled shoe versus a flat sole shoe. They squatted with approximately the same range of motion. And that was preserved throughout the sets. Uh, And yeah, both showed a decrease in velocity from the first AMRAP to the third AMRAP. Duh, but there was no difference in the velocity loss between the two groups. So, Overall, to me, this study shows like, yeah, people have slightly different mechanics when it comes to wearing shoes that are different. If you're heeled shoe, if you wear a heeled shoe, you're likely to have a more knees forward, more vertical movement pattern than if you were wearing flat sole shoes to the extent that that's what you want to do or that's your preferred style or preference. I can't speak to that, you know, because you're gonna you're gonna have to figure that out through your own training like what are your preferences what do you, how do you want to squat etc but if you if somebody was wearing flat sold shoes and they're like what would happen if i put on heeled shoes i'd be like well you'd probably be a little more upright and your knees will travel a little bit further forward and to the extent that's beneficial to you so be it but i can't say anything more than that i can't say if you will lift more weight lift less weight whatever um yeah And as far as like what are the effects of that slight difference that you're more vertical, more knees forward, more ankle flexion with a heeled shoe compared to more bent over, less knee flexion, less uh, ankle dorsiflexion in a flat sole shoe, what are the implications of that? I don't think it does anything with respect to muscular hypertrophy, like regional hypertrophy. Basically, the EMG data on these slightly different joint angles or whatever doesn't seem to indicate any difference in activation or muscle excitation that is significant. And it it needs to be a large amount of excitation and activation difference to actually seem seemingly matter. So I wouldn't think like, oh, if you wear heeled shoes, more quads. I'm like, it's just you're just training legs, dude. Like, (laughs) you know. Uh, but, but I could see an argument for maybe some differences in strength development just based on the slightly different joint angles that were, uh, achieved and, and trained. But again, I think more of that has to do with like, if you always squat a particular way in particular footwear, you're going to get used to squatting that way. And so, yeah, it makes no, you know, it's not surprising to me that your strength may be different in compared to something that's less familiar. And, uh, yeah, I don't know, Austin, uh, you got a hot take on the, uh, on the shoe study. I just find it deeply,
1: deeply uninteresting. Okay. <laughs> I think. Okay. I mean, so so people, as they tend to do in this space, they have uh, they they tend towards strong opinions on things, and you'll hear people make strong recommendations for shoes, against shoes, about the effects of shoes, about why you should use them or shouldn't, or or whatever the case is. And I think that this is this kind of study. I'm. I think that these are just becoming less and less. Useful over time. Perhaps this is the natural history of of people in this scene is to become disenchanted with, you know, some of the the, the choices of, of research topics and things like that. Um, but the the other the other aspect of this, as as has been seen in in lots of other studies, is where you kind of. Do this kind of research on a relatively small or trivial variable or something like that. And then you collapse things, things get collapsed down into an average effect. And you end up seeing, you know, no difference between groups or something like that. And then um, people will take that and run with it to say that, you know, it doesn't matter at all for anybody, Uh, uh, move on, move on with your life. And this was actually a topic that um, our friend Greg Knuckles and, uh, and, and Trexler talked about on their podcast recently, as it related to individual differences with things and how much that can get washed out with like average responses in, in studies. And people can draw the wrong conclusions from that, because that's not indicating that there may or may not be a difference for a given individual. The issue, though, is that to the extent that any of those differences may exist, it is at this point in time, it's essentially impossible to predict, right? So, so we get asked this question all the time, like when it comes to say various programming decisions or equipment decisions or something like that, like, should I do you know, this level of intensity or this level of volume? Or is this particular exercise better than that particular exercise? And so much of the time, the best we're able to do is give people a shrug and to say, I don't have reason to have a strong opinion about one over the other at the outset. Um, one may ultimately be better for you, uh, but no, we have no way of predicting this. And ultimately, so much of this comes down to kind of trial and error and and that's kind of been the case for our own training over the the many years at this point that's the case for m- most of our clients and so you know our typical approach and this is how we've discussed it like when talking about this whether on podcast or at the seminars things like that is we use the very general very vague kind of principles that we can have at least moderate confidence in from the research literature on this stuff to give people like a starting plan, be it with respect to equipment or programming or whatever the case is that on average seems to work reasonably well for most people, knowing that there's going to be huge individual variability among people with our clients in terms of, again, what works better or worse for people from a training standpoint, equipment standpoint, et cetera. But you, you can't know this stuff ahead of time. So we start out with something deliberately, you know, targeted towards that average. And then you have to individualize it kind of over time based on people's response. And there is, I think, some some optimism that we will at some point get to a place in the research world where we identify things that can be predictors of response, You know, things that we can measure or assess that will tell us, oh, this kind of a person is more likely to do better with this strategy or that strategy or this equipment or that equipment. I am decidedly way less optimistic that that's going to, pan out. And and part of the reason is seeing similar things transpire in the world of clinical medicine and how little we're able to do that. Right. So like something as simple as, you know, putting somebody on a blood pressure medicine, if you look at, you know, research on the ef- effectiveness of blood pressure lowering in people who take a given dose of a given blood pressure medicine, just like everything else, there's a huge spread in effectiveness between people. And even though we've been treating blood pressure for decades now, I still, if I'm sitting in front of somebody in a clinic and I want to treat them, I have no way of knowing, you know, oh, I have strong reason to believe this medicine at this dose is going to work better for you than that one. Um, it, it, given how difficult it is to identify strong predictors of like physiological responses, I am very skeptical that we'll get to that point. And so this is, you know, obviously veering a little bit afar of the uh, field of, of this particular paper, but it, it's a similar kind of concept of we have this di- this variable that is ultimately super trivial, right? I'm going to raise your heels like three quarters of an inch versus not, and look at the differences in outcomes. And then like, I'm not sure how, what kind of useful (laughs) implications we were going to draw from this besides what could have been predicted as far as like changes in, in positioning, but like differences in training effects, even to the effect, to the extent that we see one, like from our experience coaching lots and lots and lots of people, I could tell somebody, hey, this research paper showed that you may get a little better out of this, but they're ultimately like, no, I still hate that. And I'm going <laughs> to do this instead. So so I'm not sure you know, how a lot of this stuff ends up applying to, to like day-to-day practice with people. But uh, so much of this stuff just comes down to trial and error and individualization over time rather than... Um, I, I, I worry that people think that there are more very granular specific decisions that we can make from a training standpoint based off research than there really are. Um, there really is, is not that much outside of general principles.
0: Yeah. I think, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I'm into that. I think when it comes down to like assistive equip, like assistance or equipment in training, like you've just, you've taken it to the, another level of like, compared to programming like i feel more comfortable drawing from research when it comes to programming than i do like exercise equipment you know and then like if you would keep going further and you'd be like uh, attitudes prior to lifting a weight like <laughs> it just keep getting like more complex and less like well established like the what the fundamentals are here right yeah. so if so, so if somebody's like gun to my head lifting shoes or not, nah? and i'm like I don't know. Whatever you want, man. Yeah. Like, like for try me, try and see how you feel with them. Sure. For or me, <laughs> I honestly, I, I use a, a a weightlifting shoe to squat and to overhead press in most of the time because that's how I started training, and so I just do it by convention. It if I wore Jordans, I think I would squat and press the exact same. The main reason why I don't i don't want to crease my shoes bro That's like you kidding me very valid
1: valid justification <laughs> look man i got
0: these i got these weight uh legacy twos from reebok and they do not crease they're just they can't you can't crease them they're uncreaseable. i wear jordan's once in the gym now i got a crease like, what am i supposed to do with that um uh, yeah i've i've squatted plenty of times in flat soled shoes i never squat barefoot because i think feet are gross and i just don't like the the risk of onychomycosis is just something I just cannot, <laughs> I can't get over. Uh, so yeah, I don't want to do any of that. And so if you're listening to this, you're like, all right. So what should I do? Should I wear shoes or not? It's like try both, if, if you want. If 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 you're if you're trying to seek maybe a benefit with the shoe change, try it. And if you and, and I think
1: that's the broader point that I was making yeah. about so many variables when it comes to training. That could be yeah. like an exercise variation, that 100%. could be like a program, yeah. that could be anything, you know.
0: Yeah, I think I think within within reason, right? Cuz if you start trying a bunch of things all at once, uh it's going to be difficult to kind of parse out like Man, was this beneficial or not? It was just changing so many things. And so, like with the shoe change, if somebody's like, "I've always trained in flats," I'm very curious about weightlifting shoes. Like, what should I do? I'm like, "All right, well, maybe on your main squat day, you keep your flat shoes on, and on your assistant squat, you know, supplemental squats, wear shoes, and just see see how you feel." same thing with like sumo versus conventional it's like all right well on your assistance do it sumo and then like see if these things converge diverge how you feel what your preferences are and and, and think about
1: think back over your past say 15 years of training and think about all the things that you have experimented with i mean i think back as well we've we've, you know done a full range of intensities and volumes and we've done bands and chains and we've done knee wraps and you've done squat briefs and shoes and no shoes and slingshots and you know It's like, we just try stuff and we, you know, see how we do and, and, uh, you know, draw more on our experience, uh, with a lot of these things over time. Um, and, and, and I think that people wish that we could give people confident predictions about lots of things that we may not be able to do that for
0: I I am confident. I am confident that the shoes you wear when you, when you squat don't matter enough to, to warrant the 20 minutes we just spent talking about it.
1: That was, the, that was the genesis of my rant. <laughs>
0: yes. Yeah, 100%. Like, like, it's just preference. And and obviously, style. Because if you look good, you feel good, you lift well. That's just science right there, and I don't care. Okay, last paper. This one, uh, I actually really, really liked. The title of this paper is called The Assessment of Calories Purchased After Calorie Labeling of Prepared Foods in a Large Supermarket Chain. Uh, this is by Petitmar et al. and a research group out of Harvard, Johns Hopkins, and UPenn. It's like, okay, cool. You guys just flex in just to just to flex or like Cool. Uh, This was published in this month's uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, Internal Medicine Journal. So JAMA Internal Medicine. So what is it? This was a study that's looking at food purchasing behaviors at the grocery store before and after uh, calorie labeling of prepared foods. Um, So basically what they did is they collected data two years prior uh, and seven months after uh, this mandatory labeling uh, change happened in 173 supermarkets. So, this took place from 2015 to 2017 in the Northeast. Uh, they used this Guiding Stars food labeling program. Basically, they use the uh, USDA's National Nutrient Database to assign a one, two, or three star rating to foods based on its vitamin and mineral content, the amount of fiber in it, omega-3 fatty acids, added saturated fat, added sodium, sugar, etc. So basically, it's trying to give people a very easy sort of way to discern like good food, better food, best food. Uh, So one star is good, two stars would be better, and three stars would be best. And it's just an apple it's like an apple with one, two, or three stars. It looks like Schoolhouse Rock designed this graphic, and I assume it's on the front of foods. And it's like one star, two star, three star. Uh, interestingly, nowhere in the paper and nowhere in the Guiding Stars like website. I really try to dig into this. Was there like a public health uh, education like campaign about yo? We got this Guiding Stars like program. Here's what it means. It's just like I assume that people are reading the label and they say, "Oh, good, one star." Ooh, right next to it better two stars uh so anyway i'm just curious to know like what happened at the community level as far as like you know, we got the stars thing coming out here's what you do um so in any case what they did is they aggregated sales at the uh store week level because the researchers felt that most people go shopping for groceries once per week. They calculated the total weekly calories per transaction and calories per item from three separate categories of prepared foods before and after this labeling change. So the three categories were bakery, entrees and sides, and then deli meats and cheeses. They excluded the hot and salad bar because those were not labeled Um and so even though those are technically prepared uh, foods, they just didn't include them because they did not get the labeling change. And they also did a subgroup analysis on those using the uh, using food stamps, so the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, just to see if there were any differences in food purchasing behavior changes based on uh, socioeconomic status. So what were... The, first of all, Austin, by the way, when you go shopping for food, before we get into this, when you go shopping for food, I assume that you do some shopping. Uh... Are, are you looking at the label? you ever look at the label?
1: Um, if I am to well yeah so so to the extent that I'm purchasing something that is packaged, which is probably a relative minority of of the stuff that I would buy, if it is something that is like new that is unfamiliar to me that I'm like, Hmm, this looks interesting um, I wonder what's up with this thing then I will look at the label in the store um, otherwise if it's stuff that I've been you know obviously eating for a long time I already am familiar with what's on it then no and then you know a lot of other uh, produce and things like that that don't necessarily have labels don't don't need that so
0: dude I, uh, I was in LA this past weekend and I went to a famous grocery store I've been there before but you know I've never told the story Th- this place is called Erewhon and it's like like, Sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings. Oh, no. It's like, <laughs> did you ever watch the series You on uh, on Netflix? No. Oh, okay. Well, just imagine Whole Foods, but like on steroids. Okay. Like $30 peanut butter, for example. <laughs> like, and so, but looking at the labels, the labels are missing all sorts of like key information uh, that you could be like. You're looking at calories. You're like, okay, cool. And then you're like, okay, what's the fat content? Cool. Okay, well, what's the saturated fat breakdown? It's just like missing. Mm-hmm. They're like, well, it's naturally prepared and whatever. And you know, Mackenzie in the back room like made, made this up himself. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, yeah, it's it's wild, man. I like it's uh it's in Venice and it's like it's you're you know you can see a bunch of celebs there shopping. You're just like, why are people spending? There was a watermelon 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 for fifty dollars (laughs) fifth what like the only way i'm buying watermelon for fifty dollars is if it's like got something laced in it and i'm like yep i'll buy that i'll buy that yeah okay uh yeah i don't uh i buy most of my stuff um on, like i use an app to like deliver get my food delivered most of the time uh and actually they don't actually have nutrient labels like available which i think is an oversight uh just because that behavior is going to become more more common so look uh amazon if you need me to weigh in like be a consultant for your app development like i'm happy to do it <laughs> but i i i know that when we've gone to the store like as a crew like at our seminars yeah there'll be some like label review and i think we all kind of look at the same thing we're like all right what's the you're like glancing like what does the macros look like like protein carbs fat just to see and then you like look at you look at like the calories and then you look at the ingredients and like and like the servings
1: breakdown how many servings <laughs> yeah. you know per yeah. serving per
0: container etc yeah yeah exactly um and I think man that'd be a harder s- sell to try to teach people how to like interpret that and do then just the stars so I get why the stars thing is there I just we'll get back to my thoughts on these the star rating but yeah okay so the results of this study, they covered uh, basically uh, this analysis covered 72% of all prepared and packaged food sales for this uh, two-year and seven-month period. Um, for the prepared foods, uh, basically the pre- once the labeling was instituted, the prepared bakery food purchasing behavior reduced... Uh, by about 5% uh, calories by about 5% compared to the projections um that the the authors came up with so basically once they started labeling these things people bought less of the prepared bakery food than than they otherwise would have uh same thing uh with the prepared deli foods there was an 11% decrease in calories uh, compared to the projections a- and then the prepared entrees and side dishes there were to, there was no significant difference uh with respect to packaged foods yep there was a decline in bakery items, entrees and sides, and deli items um, a few percent from each. And so overall, after labeling, customers purchased fewer prepared items per transaction, and the total amount of calories uh, per item um, in the transaction also went down. Uh, And this was the same across different socioeconomic status uh, levels as well. So there was no difference with people on the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program or food stamps. Um, So it just seems like the labeling seemed to alter food purchasing behaviors. And even though these are like relatively small changes, when I'm like, oh, reduce you know calories per transaction by about 5%, so that's 10 calories, uh, for example, or decreased the number of prepared deli uh, foods that were purchased uh, by 11%, that's an 18 calorie per transaction decrease. That's a lot over the course of a week. And then over the course of a month, and in the course of 12 months and the course of many years, if you can reduce as calories by a small amount, that's that's a pretty big change. And again, if you apply that to the population level, oh boy. Um, so I don't know. I, I think labeling and an informed customer is probably a better customer. Um, and especially since it didn't seem like they had to do any like public education to get people up on like what these things meant, one star, two star, three star. My only gripe here is that I think the 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 star rating system is just a little. It's a little. It's a little too woo for me. For example, I don't give a shit how much omega three fatty acids are in the foods. Like I don't. I don't care. Right. And I and uh, I, I feel like the criteria that you're using should be maybe a little bit more scientifically supported. Like, yep, if it's got added sodium, added saturated fat, or added fats, period, and added sugar, like, yeah, you can, like, lower it down the list. Cool. We're all in agreement. If it's got more protein, if it's got more fiber, uh, more minerals, more vitamins, uh, whole servings of whole grains, whatever, cool. We're all in agreement that that should improve, like, the rating. Um, But as far as other stuff, like, the amount of omega-3s or omega-6s or what, it's like, what, dude? Like, now you're just making it up. Like you, ha- you, you had me at the beginning, um, so I think adjusting the labeling criteria would probably be my, my, my issue here. But otherwise, I feel like yeah, uninformed customers a smart, a smart customer.
1: Yeah, I find this a- act area pretty interesting in general. I mean, I think we've talked a ton about. <sighs> the mechanisms of obesity in society and, and how it tends to get developed and promoted and this combination on the, you know, the individual side, you know, things like genetic predisposition playing a very substantial role um, based on the, the research evidence we have so far, uh, regulation of appetite and satiety and fullness and hunger and things like that. And then on the other side, we have this whole issue of the food environment and, you know, at the moment we're stuck with this like somewhat piecemeal approach to tackling the issue of obesity, be it, you know, in, in practice with behavior change counseling now increasingly with the use of, you know, potent and and effective uh, medications and surgical treatments to, to handle the, the, you know, the issues as much as we can on, on the individual side with respect to their, you know, um, appetite and satiety signaling and, and uh, behavior and things like that and then on the food environment side things are super complex as we've talked about before when it comes to like a policy level and the food industry and the incentives and and the the, the um, you know where, where the financial rewards stand from that standpoint and so this is a way to, to approach the issue because as you said, you know, interpreting the actual nutrition facts label that's on the back of packages is quite difficult. This has been researched and and people of low educational status, low socioeconomic status, uh, older populations, a bunch of other populations they find it pretty difficult to interpret those things and to make decisions uh, accordingly particularly when you are in you know the real time situation right like you're shopping in the store you're trying to interpret this on the fly and make purchasing decisions one thing versus the other there may be time crunch involved like you need you, you don't want to spend all day in the store you got to make a decision maybe you got family kids you know screaming that they want <laughs> a particular thing or something else so it can be very difficult and so this kind of simplified Uh, labeling on the front of packages. And there's tons of different systems that have been developed. This stars system is is just one of them. There's a bunch of other ones uh, as a way to simplify these purchasing decisions and make it much more of like a quick, you know, eyeball glance, kind of heuristic based approach of I see this, that really makes my decision making quite a lot easier. And I've actually even experienced this myself, um, not as we said we are comfortable interpreting like nutrition facts labels but actually at the cafeteria of the hospital where i where i work now i noticed that like at the checkout line when you're getting your entree they actually will have a a, a different options listed at that kind of like the hot meal section one that's labeled in green one that's labeled in yellow one that's labeled in red based on again i don't know all the details of their their criteria uh, but it does you know my eye gets pulled towards or <laughs> it feels like it gets pulled towards the the green option there, or at least away from the red option um, of which one which one to choose um, and so so I have sensed that myself even in that situation, so I think similar things can play out in a in a grocery store situation, so that 's where there's been these different labeling systems that carry different amounts of information right so this star system does not really carry a ton of information since it's literally just like one two three star it's paired with a word good better best Um, but there are other ones that will actually show like quantitation of certain things Um, so like you know whichever nutrients of interest they choose there might be a box that shows the amount of saturated fat intake or uh, in the in the uh the uh in the package or the amount of added sugar or the amount of added sodium whatever the case is that would be like more informational and then they can sometimes combine that with like what I described, I've seen in my cafeteria here, this kind of stoplight system is one that's become particularly popular. Um, the, you know, red light, yellow light, green light seems to be a pretty ubiquitous, you know, generally well understood kind of system that's put out there. And they've done both randomized controlled trials, uh, randomized trials of these um, interventions in a like a, a, an artificial lab setting, like kind of like a mini grocery store setting and sending people through, as well as in real world settings. And they've shown that these actually can impact people's purchasing decisions pretty significantly. Um, and as you said, uh, both over the course of a lifespan and over the course of the whole population, even small effects can translate into pretty substantial, you know, changes in outcomes. There are some other interesting like nuances here that I've seen, you know, crop up and and learned about myself. So for example, there's some research that like the effect of a red light indicator has a bigger effect on people avoiding that food than a green light indicator has on pulling people towards it. And so that one I found especially interesting in the context of this star system that you that, that that was brought up in this study because there's no stoplight system here. It's just one, two, or three stars. And one star is good, two is better, and three is best, which means that there's not really any label for, like, bad. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, just yeah. the absence of a star. And I'm like, yeah. okay, so... In through the lens of like people will tend to avoid bad more than they will get pulled towards good. I wonder if that's a limitation of this guiding star system, because if there's you know if if the lowest ranking you can have is good and the only other thing is just like no label, right? How do I differentiate you know the in in the same way as I would on a stoplight system? How do I know if this package this brand is even like participating in this like labeling scheme at all? Maybe they're just not participating and that's why there's no there's no uh, label on there. So I think that this system. To the extent that we are going to be necessarily limited in how much we can influence the whole food environment from the food industry policy, food reformulation standpoint, et cetera, I think this is a decent like, you know, band-aid over that over that sure. broader problem um, because it does seem to impact purchasing decisions. And maybe by impacting purchasing decisions, that may itself be an incentive for the food companies as far as reformulation goes. If yeah. they notice an impact on purchasing decisions because, hey, people are avoiding these red light things, maybe I need to, you know, adjust things in a more favorable direction to to, you know, bump up my my light rating or something like that. Maybe. Yeah. Well, you know, that kind of remains to be seen, I suppose.
0: Yeah. You would need to see well, I'd like to see two like follow-up kind of studies. One, like, all right, so this is the change in the purchasing behaviors. Let's correlate that with actual outcomes so like what happened with weight weight trajectory food security etc yeah things like that and then also like i agree there needs to be some sort of like bad this food is (laughs) like maybe zero stars you know whatever you don't have to like put like the grim reaper on it or whatever but the whole yeah i think that's
1: what the stoplight system simplifies but yeah
0: you're right but but the whole point is like if you have something that's like you're labeling and you're like "Mm, not good yeah. <laughs> At some point as a manufacturer or food, pre- you start feeling not so great about yeah. that. And if yeah. that's correlated with lower sales, I mean, you think about like, what are some like pushes or some nudges to like get the system to change a little bit outside of like wholesale policy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, th- those could definitely, that could definitely work. So yeah, I don't know. We'll see. This was a cool paper and hopefully, uh, some other stuff, uh, pops up. We'll link all this and some additional stuff like Austin was talking about in the description below. But, uh, yeah, man, we did it. This is episode 194, September, 2022 research review. Again, uh, RX is back in stock. You can take 10% off until Friday or through Friday, uh, of, of your whey protein order by using the code pro 10. So make sure to stock up on way. If you're into that also check out, check us out at our live in-person seminars coming up. All that stuff is linked in the description below. Thank you for joining us here. On the Barbell Medicine podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning, and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Before you head anywhere, leave us a five star rating and review. Really helps drive traffic to our podcast. So we keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Big shout out to Dr. Austin Brocky for joining us. And we'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine podcast.